What's up, guys? I am super excited to bring you today's episode with a doctor that doesn't run from the truth, but gives it to you straight. His groundbreaking medical work has earned him awards and accolades too long to list. Dr. Gabor Mate is a best-selling author, and he's not holding anything back in his latest book, The Myth of Normal. Today, we're talking about norms of a toxic culture, why society's unhealthy state is actually a natural response, and how poor health ties into trauma. I hope you guys love listening to this episode as much as I did recording it. And if you do, please leave a review on our podcast. That's the best way to support the podcast so we can get the show out there to more people like you that want to create a better life. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Gabor Mate, welcome back to the show. Nice to be back again. Thank you. Dude, so good to have you. Uh, as we were talking about before we started ro- rolling, your book A is incredible, but B is very unnerving in mm. the picture that it paints because it feels so accurate. It's a big book in terms of what it's taking on. So I want to start at the beginning. Explain to people when you say the myth of normal, what do you mean? And then after that, we'll get into what a toxic culture is. I mean, a number two things. We have this idea what, that what is normal is also healthy and natural. And I'm saying that in this culture, the norm is neither healthy nor is it natural. In fact, the norm, I think, is making us sick, number one. Number two, we talk about illnesses and, uh, of body and mind as abnormalities. I'm saying that illness in this society, given the conditions, is a normal response to an abnormal circumstance. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by the myth of normal. Okay, so the obviously you go into great detail about this in the book. And I remember at one point stopping and taking the note, like, wait a second. Basically, everything that we think of, like you're saying, is sort of a normal result of aging or, oh, this is, you know, just some people have this kind of response and it is what it is. It's just natural. Um, it's all coming back to trauma and it's all coming back to childhood trauma and um, a specific idea that we'll get to in a minute, but I want to push a little bit on that idea. So what, why is what we see in terms of things that we would categorize as mental health issues or, um, overly stressed lives or all of the myriad things that we think of rheumatoid arthritis, one of the examples that you give, how is that an adaptive response? Well, the rheumatoid arthritis is not, a, not an adaptive response in itself. It's the outcome of an adaptive response. So when you talk to people, and I've interviewed many, or you look at the, the research literature on who gets rheumatoid arthritis, it's people who are super conscientious. Um, they have what's called um, hyperautonomous self-sufficiency. In other words, they don't know how to ask for help. They look after the emotional needs of others rather than caring for their own caring for their own, they tend to suppress their healthy anger, and uh, they really try to fit in and not make waves. And these people, that's an adaptation. This is how they adapted to their childhood. Mm. They grew up in families where they were not accepted, seen for they were, they might have been traumatized. The adaptation was to make themselves, to suppress their authentic emotions, and to try and fit in with other people's expectations, and to meet other people's needs. That's the adaptation. But that adaptation puts tremendous stress on the person, and that stress causes the illness. So what I'm saying is that the illness is the outcome of an adaptation. Okay, so let's talk about that adaptation. So yeah. 
I think a lot about the human mind as having directives. There are things that we have been hardwired to do over millions of years of evolution through even, you know, sort of the non-human part of our evolutionary yeah. tree up through where we are now. And so these directives get implanted and it seems like your thesis is largely about the way that as a child we go, okay, this is what our environment is. I don't have a secure attachment style. Yeah. Maybe my parents aren't paying attention to me, but what is the directive? Is the directive to get along is the directive to fit in? Like, what is the core directive that causes this to become pathological? The core directive is twofold. One is we have to attach, we have to belong, we have to connect. But the other directive is that we have to do so while maintaining our own autonomy, our own authenticity. Auto means the self. So that means we have to be in touch with our gut feelings and our emotions and to be true to them. And so what we need is relationships in which we can be true to ourselves. That's the directive. Now, as soon as the directive changes by, because of, this is what we're wired for. For example, authenticity, being in touch with the gut feeling. Out there in the wild as a hunter-gatherer, how long do you survive if you're not in touch with your gut feelings? Mm. So that's an essential thing. But what if you grew up in a home where your honest emotions are not accepted by your parents? Let's say your parents have read Jordan Peters' book, 12 Rules for Life, where he actually says that an angry child should be made to sit by themselves till they come back to normal. Or that parents should be able to hit their kids in order to get them to comply. Now, if a child experiences healthy and normal anger of a two-year-old, but the message he gets that if you're angry, you will not be accepted by us, in fact, you'll be excluded, you'll be given a time off, we won't even be with you, until you come back to quote-unquote normal, then the child will adaptively repress their anger so as to maintain their relationship with their parents. So they give up their authenticity for the sake of the attachment. That giving up of the attachment suppresses not just the emotions, but because the emotions are physiologically connected to the immune system. In fact, they're part and parcel of the same apparatus. When you suppress your emotions, you're suppressing your immune system as well. And now you're asking, why are we seeing a rise of autoimmune disease in this society, which we are, and as globalization spreads, we're seeing more autoimmune disease around the world, is because people are more and more having to suppress themselves to fit in with the false expectations of a society. So that's the link. All right, I'm gonna see if I can hold all this in my head, because this is one of the, the most interesting core elements of the book, is mm. this collision between authenticity and attachment. Yes. Used an incredible analogy that really hit me hard, and that's you said the lung is not the response to an expectation of oxygen. The lung is the expectation of oxygen. Like, yeah. it, it, it is the manifestation of that. Yeah, if there, was no, if there was no oxygen, we'd have no lungs. Our, our lungs evolved as an expectation for oxygen. Which makes total sense to me. Yeah. And if the, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I think yeah. I'm pretty close, that the human is the expectation of attachment. Absolutely. So that we, we exist only in relation to having that attachment. Well, how long would a baby survive without attachment? It wouldn't. Yeah, so, 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 so the infant is an expectation... But not just for physical, physical attachment, but also for emotional attachment of a nurturing 
and unconditional kind. We're an expectation for that. We're, that's how we evolved as a species. The, the baby gorilla is an expectation to be loved, nurtured, held, and fed, and protected by the uh, mother gorilla. Now, have you ever seen a mother gorilla who ignores their baby's cries? Can you even imagine one? Have you seen a mother cry, a cat that ignores the, the, the little infant kitten's meow? Infant is an expectation for unconditional acceptance. We tell parents to ignore their babies crying. We tell parents to separate from their kids if the kids behave in a way that they don't like. We tell parents to deny children's uh, natural need to play out there in nature. So human beings are expect we evolved, as you say, as hominins over the last couple of million years, and as a species, the human, you know, the homo sapiens, we evolved as expectations for certain conditions. The less a society meets those conditions, the more toxic it becomes to the developmental needs and th therefore healthy growth of the human being. Okay, so let's walk through that. So yeah. what do you do? Because you talk about needing to set boundaries and you're, you mentioned, look, I'm a parent and at the end of the day I do have yeah. to set boundaries. So how do we set a boundary without, and, and I'll quote, I think it was Plato or Aristotle that said this, the only impossible job is raising children. <laughs> One of the reasons that I did not have kids is because I, uh, my sister and I were raised in the house, the same house by the same parents, and we reacted very differently to that. Well, first of all, you're not brought up in the same home by the same parents. That's interesting. Why, why do you say that? Because uh, the, the parent that the child experiences is the parent the way they show up for that particular child. Your parents did not show up the same way for a female child as for a male child. Even if they tried to, they couldn't have because they're programmed culturally not to. Secondly, you were different ages. Uh, you came along at different stages of their parent relationship to one another or their self and, or their relationship to themselves. You did not have the same parents. Mm -hmm. You did not grow up in the same house. Yeah, that's, no, and uh, for number that's one, number insightful. two, you might have different sensibilities. That is for sure. One of you may be temperamentally more or less sensitive than the other. So that means even if your parents could have been the same, which they couldn't have been, but even if they could have been the same to both of you, you would have experienced them differently. Mm. Okay, so knowing that level of complexity, yeah. how, how do you do this well? Like it, it seems, so my mother disciplined me both physically, so I was spanked. And well, discipline, sorry to interrupt, Tom. No, please. Discipline you is one way to put it. Hit you is another way to put it. Yeah. You know? So, uh, which that word doesn't ring weird to me, but mm. I know given your area of expertise that it does for you. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. So how do we set a boundary with, without the child feeling that there are conditions around the love? Because reading that in your book, the yeah. and again, I don't have kids, so nobody needs yeah. to panic, but um, unconditional love to me, at an intellectual level anyway, doesn't seem to break just because you're told to sit on the stairs or be isolated. Well, you see, the, the love that the child experiences, see, I don't doubt that your mother loved you, but the love that the child experiences is not what the parent feels. It's what the child gets from the parent. Mm. Now, if you're told that if you're angry, you need to be on your own, what message are you getting? 
you're getting the message that only under certain emotions are you only when certain emotions are present are you acceptable to the parent. Isn't the the, the child the child will not experience that as love. But that um, so I will say this. This is purely anecdotal, and it's just me, yeah. and I don't want to get lost in that. Yeah. But um, I remember, I even as a kid, I would say that my mom. I sometimes get very angry at my mom, but I never doubt that she loves me. No, and I, 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 nor should you doubt that she loved you because she loved you. But that doesn't mean that you experience the love is unconditional. You wouldn't have any idea. You had nothing to compare it to. That's the only love you'd ever known. So how do you set a boundary without breaking the sense okay, of Okay, well, look, so that's the question of who's setting the boundary. You see... Let's say a parent with... No, uh, no, no, but here's what I mean. With children who are naturally, lovingly connected to their parents, how you set a boundary is you say, don't do that. With a parent that the child is not totally unconditionally connected, you have to use more and more force. So when you talk about setting boundaries, yes, you can't let a kid, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's not Alaska, but we get pretty cold there. We get pretty cold there in the wintertime. A one-year-old doesn't get a choice about, do I get to go outside naked into the winter in Vancouver? No mm-hmm. choice, it's not a democracy. No, you don't go outside naked. But how I do that, a child who's wanting to attach to the parent warmly will naturally follow the parent's advice. You see, um, your mother hit you. Aboriginal people, uh, uh, hunter-gatherer people, don't hit their kids. When the, when the Caucasians or the Europeans, the Christians, arrived in North America, they were appalled at the parenting practices of the natives because they didn't hit their kids. And yet those kids were far more confident and capable than the Caucasian kids. So that you can set boundaries through just love through relationship, through example. It doesn't have to involve force and certainly does not have to include physical force. Is there, so that is one of the things that, that doesn't ring true to me. Now, I haven't studied it, so who knows? So maybe this is just because I've grown up in the system where yeah. it's sort of broken already from the jump. But is there anywhere where that experiment is being run today where we could see that? Because kids seem impulsive and their brains aren't developed and they just seem like little messes that need things like, like for instance, a kid that throws a tantrum because you won't let them go outside into the snow. So so why can't they throw a tantrum? That's, they're they're expressing their anger. Not, yeah. Let's say. But but, 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 but what were you saying before? Because I want to go back to it. Just before you talked about the tantrum. Oh yeah, kids are impulsive. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, children want to belong to the parent. They want to connect to the parent. There's a natural um, range of attachment behaviors that the kid will go through under healthy circumstances. One of them, first of all, is they want to be physically near you. They want to be held by you. In fact, Aboriginal people carry their kids everywhere they go. Mm. That's what they do. Gorillas carry their kids everywhere they go spontaneously, number one. Number two, the child wants to emulate you. They want to be like you. That's a natural attachment drive. So if you show up as a loving, nurturing parental figure, the, parent, the kid will naturally want to emulate you and, and copy you. Number three, the child will want to be good for you without any coercion whatsoever. And, uh, 
Again, I'm telling you, uh, hunter-gatherer groups have been studied extensively, extensively for how they parent. And now even books are being written now about how, trying to learn the lessons that they teach about how to parent. Why? Because we've lost our parenting instincts. You're talking like an adult without parenting instincts. And uh, that's not a criticism. Uh, I'm just saying that when you're treated like the way you're treated, some ways I was treated, I talk in the book about it. Look, let me just jump back a little bit. It's, this is in the book. I'm two weeks old. I'm still in the hospital with my mother. And she, d she writes her diary. My poor little son, my heart breaks for you because you've been crying for the last hour and a half to be fed. Mm. But I don't feed you because I promised the doctor that I will only feed you on schedule. Now what's happening to me? This woman loves me. My mother desperately loved me. I know that in so many ways. But she's not listening to her own parenting instincts. Her heart is breaking, but she's letting me cry by myself because she promised some stupid doctor that she'd only feed me on schedule. What message am I getting? Am I getting the message that I'm being loved? Or is it too weak old that I'm getting the message that my needs don't matter and they don't care about how I feel? Which message am I getting? Yes, she totally loved me, but she wasn't listening to her own parenting instincts. And that is traumatic for the child. And it's confusing, because she loves me, yet she doesn't even feed me when I'm hungry. Well, that's really confusing, and it's traumatizing. And we're telling this to parents all the time in this society. As a physician, I used to tell parents to behave that way. Mm. I regret that, but I did. So what I'm talking about is a culture that has lost contact with the parenting instinct. Or, take the example of, um, do you remember Dr. Spock, is that, yeah. yeah. So Dr. Spock was the world's parenting expert for decades. And he talked about how you deal with kids, you put them to sleep, you put them to bed, and you walk out quietly, and you close the door, and you don't go back in. Because you don't give in to the tyranny of the infant, mm. he said. The tyranny of the infant. The infant has an attachment drive that says, I need to be held by mommy or daddy. The child is crying to express that attachment need because physically that's how they can attach. They, they can't emotionally connect as a, as a one month old. They can connect if you hold them, if they see you, if they hear you. What message are you giving to the kid when you don't pick them up when they're crying? That their feelings don't matter, that they don't matter. That's the message you're giving. You may love them, but you're still giving them a very negative message. And so that you may know on some level that your parent loves you because they feed you, they hug you, they whatever. But at the same time, these people that love you are deeply hurting you. That's traumatic. Aboriginal peoples don't do that kind of stuff in, under normal circumstances. They just don't do it. Do they have a rite of passage moment where, so... Uh, well, so let me do it again, sorry. Please. The spanking business? Yep. There's been studies recently published in the American Journal, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association's pediatrics publication that kids who are spanked experience 
as much trauma as kids who are more severely abused. That's what the findings are in the long term. Sorry to interrupt, but I no, should No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, this topic is, A, incredibly meaningful for anybody considering having kids, raising kids. Yeah. Um, and certainly, even for me, somebody that doesn't have kids nor plan to have kids, it's, it is the, the thesis of your book is so big and so powerful mm. that it, what it does, though, is it, okay, so I've grown up in a culture, this, your hypothesis, I've grown up in a culture that is fundamentally sick yeah. is stopping um, parent uh, many many things the book is way bigger than uh, just parenting we just yeah. happen to be on that right now but um, so it's created sort of parents that are detached from their parental instincts that's right and so they're constantly making these mistakes but it feels normal right so I grew up in it to the, yeah. the fish is the last one to recognize what water is yeah um, and so I can't even see that there could be another way of doing this right but because of that when I look at this, I think once you're in the cycle, how do you break out of it? Because A, you can't be an infant forever. Even, you know, gorillas at some point, like the, the child is distanced from the parents needs yes. to be either they break away themselves or they get pushed away or their parents may die. Also very possible. Yeah. And in the cultures that I have unintentionally encountered rights of, passage rituals because i'm interested in rites of passage yeah there's this moment but i don't so the one i'll talk to specifically because i remember it so vividly is in um the long walk to freedom nelson mandela's book he talks okay. about how i think it was your 14th birthday you're with the woman and your mother yeah. and then you are ceremoniously removed from her physically like they come and grab you and take you away at what age uh i think it was 14 okay and they take you away and then there is this, they cover you in mud mm -hmm. and then you are, actually I think before you get covered in mud, I'm getting the order wrong here. But anyway, they sit you down buck naked mm -hmm. in front of the whole tribe yeah. with a very sharp rock. They cut your foreskin off and they uh -huh. make you yell a warrior prayer. Yeah. And then they cover you in mud and then another young woman comes in after some time, washes the mud off your body. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was this whole thing. And before reading your work, I was like, that's so rad, like this rite of passage that's dope, you're taking the child away from the mother. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need 
And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Is that is that a necessary moment? Or is that all part of this like just sort of crazy detachment from what we should be doing? So I think it's a mix of both. Um, Let's just step back a little bit. Um, nature has a natural agenda for every human being. Like, when you plant an acorn, what's nature's agenda for that acorn? Grow into a tree. Grow up to be an oak tree. So nature has the same agenda for human beings, to grow up to be independent, self-mastered, um, collective, connected beings. That's nature's agenda. That's how we evolved. Mm. But that means if you meet the right developmental conditions, that kid will grow up to be an independent person. Not because you push them away, but because that's nature's agenda. Because the parents are gonna die at some point or another. So at some point or another, that infant has to be an independent adult. That's nature's agenda. We don't have to make that happen. That happens spontaneously so long as the conditions are right. Now if you plant that acorn into dry ground with no irrigation and no sunlight, ain't gonna be any oak tree. Not because the acorn doesn't have that capacity, but because the conditions weren't right. Mm -hmm. Same with human beings. So I'm saying if the conditions are right, that independence will happen anyway. Now, it's true. Societies have developed rituals of passage. So there's a Jewish bar mitzvah ceremony, which happens at age 13. You know, um, there's a vision quest that, that, that indigenous people will lead, you know. But those ritual rites of passages or those passage of rich, rites of passage rituals are conducted by adults to welcome the child into the adult community. In the original, original environments, which is small band hunter groups, there wasn't circumcision. In fact, I quote an expert on Aboriginal indigenous or hunter-gatherer groups, Dr. Donna Cianarvez of Notre Dame University, who says that circumcision wasn't a part of that kind of practice. So that circumcision came along later with, 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 with more settled tribes and agriculture and so on. So once you get away from the hunter-gatherer milieu, we're getting more and more, or less and less natural. So what Mandela is describing then is a combination 
of a healthy rite of passage of we're recognizing your adulthood now, we're honoring you, welcoming you to the community of adults. But there was also an element of barbarism in it, where you're deliberately hurting a child, for which there's no reason whatsoever, whether it's a male child or it's a female child. And we know to what degree female children in some areas of the world are hurt by the rituals of uh, circumcision. The male children are hurt as well, not to the same degree as the females. But those are already post-hunter-gatherer um, um, additions. So yes, rite of passage, beautiful. Why is it necessary to hurt somebody? It's not. Hiding in there, and I'm so curious, I'm so glad that I get to ask you directly. Hiding in there is a sounds like to me a vision of humanity that is just loving and wonderful and that our natural state is um, we would grow into the oak tree. That doesn't, that isn't my same base assumption, but mm. you very much have an expertise that I lack. So does your worldview require that belief about humans to be not purely good, but certainly default good? No, nobody's default good. We've always had problems as human beings because we're flawed beings, you know. But it's a question again of um, what develops under what conditions, you know. And uh, the more our needs are met, the more, like for example, in this society the belief very much is that we're competitive, aggressive, even hostile, selfish creatures. That's not how most. The, that's not how humanity developed. We could never have developed if that's the way we were. We could only have developed if they were nurturing and communal, communal support, and connection. And so, if you look at all kinds of cultures that are so-called um, primitive, so-called primitive, giving and receiving and connection are values, and people gain wealth by giving, not by gathering and taking from others. So wealth is defined as a set of social connections rather than a set of physical possessions. In Canada, uh, in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, they used to have the potlatch. And the potlatch were, do you know what a potlatch is? Yeah. Yeah, so it's an event where people gather and they give gifts, which is how they gather wealth of connections. That's a very different sense of wealth than gathering everything onto myself by taking it away from everybody else. One of the first things that the colonialists did is they forbade the rituals and the spiritual ways of the indigenous people, including the potlatch, because it threatened the colonialist acquisitive ethic. So we went against thousands of years of tradition in order to force people into a cultural mindset that suited the purpose of colonialism. And that's what happened. Okay, so going back to the idea of um, it doesn't require humans to be perfect. We're no, an imperfect no. creature. So if we are imperfect, and do you agree with, the, I think it was... Um, Solzhenitsyn, who said that the evil runs through, or the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man, which rings true to me. Does that ring true to you? I would say that the potential 
for both runs through every person. Hitler was a human being. As I say this in the book. Jesus was a human being. At least, let's agree that in his earthly manifestation, whether you're a Christian, he, he was a human being. Um, even Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? You know, he's in the desert and he's tempted by power and ego and uh, acquisition. Um, the Buddha, in the Buddha story, he's tempted by lust and by greed and by aggression and egotism. Mm. So yes, the potential for, for, for that kind of egotistical self-regard, which turns out to be evil at its ultimate expression, is, is that, that strain is in us. So is the strain for compassion like the Buddha, infinite love like Jesus, humility like Moses. That's all within us as well. The question is, which conditions promote which mm-hmm. in his development? The Buddhist talks about seeds, of which seeds in our minds are planted and which get watered and which don't. So, yes, I agree that the potentials are there. And in an embryo, everything is there. But the question is what gets nourished and what gets suppressed? And I'm saying that in this society, it's the worst of us that gets nourished and the best of us that gets suppressed. All right, so let's define those. What uh, I would assume that loving attachment, unconditionally loving yeah. attachment, certainly towards your children, yeah. that's part of the best of us. Yeah. What are some other attributes of the best? And then we'll move on to some of the worst. So let's talk about children and then let's talk about people in general. So uh, children's needs are uh, unconditional loving acceptance. From everyone or just their parents? Well, their parents. or Well, ideally from the community, but certainly they're, n- they're nurturing caregivers, whoever they are. And they're meant to be more than just a parent, by the way. We're never meant to be parented in nuclear families. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's pure. That's a modern thing. So unconditional loving acceptance. Rest from having to work to make the relationship work. Say that again? Rest from having to work to make the relationship work. In other words, the child should not have to be mold themselves into anything to make the relationship work with their parents. They shouldn't have to work. They shouldn't have to be good, nice, pretty to make the relationship work. They shouldn't have to take care of the parents' emotional needs to make the relationship work. Like people that have to work to make their, to meet their parents' emotional needs end up in deep trouble as adults, mm. very often physically ill. You go into tremendous detail in the book about yeah. that. So. Children uh, should be able to allow to feel all their emotions. And I mentioned play before. Those are the needs of the child. As human beings more generally, we need a sense of connection, a sense of meaning, a sense of belonging, a sense of transcendence, so that there's something, we're part of something greater than just our legal egoic concerns. These are all the needs of human beings. To the extent that they're met, we thrive, to the extent that they're not met, we shrivel. And there's lots of shriveled people in positions of great power in this society. No doubt. Okay, so what are, what are the, as we're creating this soil that we're going to nurture things in, how do things start to go awry and how do we begin to prep the soil for something better? Well, We've covered that to some degree, so things will begin to go awry when we lose contact with our pending instincts, and we l- and we. Is it just that? Like, is this 
Would you, um, uh, speaking from experience, the book yeah. is very broad, but if you were going to really like bring it down, is this largely an echo of a parenting system that has become dysfunctional? It's, it's a society that's become humanly dysfunctional that transmits its expectations <laughs> through the parents. And that actually begins before birth because already the, the more stressed and troubled the parents are, that has a physiological impact on the child's brain development. So I'm, I'm just talking pure science here. So mothers who are stressed and depressed, their infants in the womb are already getting those messages hormonally and through uh, nerve conduction and so on so that you can actually um, monitor the heart rates of mothers who are stressed and those heart rates will be different than the heart rates of, of infants whose mothers are not stressed. In the book you talk about the, uh, the crazy ice storm yeah. that ends up showing up in the epigenetic markers of kids. If you don't mind, walk us through that. It's pretty crazy. Well, it, it's only that um, in, in the laboratory they've shown that <clears throat> the more you stress um, parent animals, the more troubled and stressed the kids will be. So in Quebec there was an ice storm some years ago and the, and the parents underwent great, the mothers underwent great stress. And, you know, there was, it was really cold, there was no heating, a lot of stuff wasn't working. Um, those mothers who experienced that stress, their children were shown to have more troubles later on, behaviorally and learning-wise and in, and, and in other ways as well. So again, the stresses of the parent translate into the physiology of the child. There's a, there's a study that I quoted in the book about, they looked at um, marriages that were stressed. And you could, <laughs> there's two ways you could tell how stressed the, the marriage was. One is you could ask the parents and they, could, they would talk about it. Mm. The other way is you could, marry, you could measure the urinary stress hormone levels of their children. Wow. And the parental conflict was reflected in elevated stress hormone levels in the urine of the children. Now, elevated stress hormone levels in the urine means that the immune system itself is under assault. Mm -hmm. And that has an implication for health later on. Uh, we know, for example, that the more stressed parents are, the greater the risk of asthma for their children. And that the degree of stress on the parents is correlated with the amount of medication a kid will need for their asthma. Um, uh, amongst other studies, lots of such studies. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there's a correlation between the emotional environment that we grew up in and our physiology. Yeah, I mean, that's really the core thrust of the book is, hey, all these things that you think are maybe just old age or... Yeah. Um, bad diet, they're actually related to trauma or even disease. In fact, one of the ones you talk about that was the most eye-opening was ALS, yeah. which you know I would think of as a genetic disease, bummer, horrible roll of the dice. But walk people through the, the um, there is a predictable personality trait of people with ALS that I was like, what? Well, so um, first of all, there's nothing genetic about ALS. Nobody's ever shown, uh, I mean, there might be some rare examples of ALS genetically induced, but those would be a tiny, infinitely small minority. So genes don't have much to do with most chronic illnesses. There are some illnesses that are genetic. There's the one that runs in my family. My mother and my aunt had it. 
muscular dystrophy. Gradually, they became weaker and weaker. Already when I was a child, my mother couldn't lift her arm up. And uh, in the end, she was not mobile at all. And so if you get that gene, you're going to get the disease. But those diseases are very, very rare, about one in 10,000. Most chronic illnesses have very little or no genetic basis to it. Mm. So, for example, there's a breast cancer gene, but out of 100 women with breast cancer, only seven will have the gene. And out of 100 women with the gene, not all of them will get the cancer. Mm. So, in many cases, even if these genes are implicated, it's the, inf it's the interaction of genes and environment. Now, in ALS, it's the, you know, the, the ALS personality, which I noticed in palliative care when I was a palliative care physician, also in the literature, are people that repress their healthy anger and are emotionally very rigid, and they don't ask for help from anybody. Um, and usually that's based on childhood trauma. And uh, Lou Gehrig was like that. The Can you define trauma in you you go to very careful lengths in the yeah. book to make sure that people understand trauma yeah. isn't always getting hit with a bat or yeah. uh, being sexually abused like there's a range that can be wildly impactful well let's take uh lou gehrig after whom the name the disease is named in north america his father was an alcoholic and lou gehrig uh, was one of these really nice guys that took care of his mother emotionally he had to that's what happens in the home of an alcoholic. Very often the child becomes the caregiver. Now, he was such a nice guy that, you know, he, the, 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 the record that he set for uh, consecutive games played that stood for so many, many, many decades. Why did he set that record? Because even if he was sick, he would play. Because he's too dutiful to his teammates to take himself out of a game. Mm. Is that a healthy thing or not? It's not healthy. On the other hand, when there was a young rookie on the, on the Yankees who got sick and he couldn't play, and the manager was very upset with this kid, Gary says, what are you talking about? He's sick, he can't play. Took the rookie to his own home, where he lived with his mother. His mother put the kid to bed, the rookie, nursed him, and Lou Gehrig slept on the couch. So that kind of self-sacrificing, self-negating, emotionally repressed, really nice person, is the person which is typical of the ALS personality. And there's been a whole lot of studies on that that show that you know these are the people that get ALS. It's just that the doctors don't make the link between that personality pattern and the ALS. They so just basically think swallowing your anger. Swallowing your healthy anger. Direct, yeah, sorry. Swallowing your healthy yeah, anger yeah. is directly causative is, to ALS? I think it's a major contributor. You never see it. You never see it, and you never see the healthy anger in anybody with ALS, and you always see this hyper-conscientious, hyper-autonomous self-sufficiency that, no, I don't need any help. Mm. Now, and when you talk to neurologists, which has been done in studies, they always describe their patients as extraordinarily nice, ALS patients extraordinarily nice. Why are they so nice? Because they, re they repress their healthy aggression. It's just that the neurologists don't make the link between that and the disease. I'm saying that that plays a major role because that repression of emotions, again, the emotions are not separable from our physiology. The nervous system and the immune system and hormonal apparatus and the gut and the heart, they're all one system. When something happens in one area, 
something happens in the other area as well. Look, the analogy in the book is this. Think of a person with a big beach ball trying to push a beach ball under the water. That takes a lot of effort. Now, have you ever been angry? Of course. Okay. Now, when you're angry, it's not just an emotional state in your head. It's a your whole body is. Mm. Now, how much energy would it take to suppress that energy, to suppress that anger? Can you imagine? Yes. So that you don't even feel it? But not feeling your anger was an adaptation to your childhood, where the anger wasn't permitted. So th that emotional, physiological effort of repressing anger takes a toll on the nervous system and on the immune system. It's a major role in disease. I'm saying, yeah, it pays a major contribution. Mm. Yeah, this is where the book really starts to get into some fascinating territory as you go through all these different diseases and you start talking about, okay, repressing anger. Uh, you go into the, God, is it the natural killer T cells yeah, end up yeah. uh, being suppressed yeah. because you're putting so much energy away from your immune system. Your immune system can't keep up. And so there's all kinds of things like cancer that are afflicted. There was one thing where you said like back in the 1800s or early 1900s, there was a doctor that was like, oh, whenever you see somebody with heart disease, they have this type of personality. Yeah, yeah. And you even talk about in the book, the type C, you said it's not a personality type, but that there are traits yeah. that people with type C have yeah. that end up being sort of pro disease personality traits. Yeah. What are some of those traits? Well, before I answer that, let me go back to something. Let's talk about healthy anger for a minute, if you could. Mm. Okay. Um, then I'll illustrate these traits. Okay. What is healthy anger? Why are we given healthy anger? So there's a, there's a system in our brain for anger. Not just for us, mammals. What is it there for? It's there to protect our boundaries. Somebody to invade your space, physically, or in the case of human beings, emotionally, used to say, no, stay out. That's the role of healthy anger. Now, if, rest, if I repress that healthy anger, what would happen to you, to me in life? People would be just trespassing all over me all the time because I had no boundaries. So healthy anger is a boundary defense. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. Okay. Healthy anger is a boundary defense. It just says... It seems like one of its uses, I'll be honest. I don't know that I'd say it's its only use, but I don't know if it matters. Healthy anger, that's its only use. That's its major use. Just boundary protection. That's its major use. That's why it came along. Animals have it. You're in my space. Ah! Get How out. far are you extending that to loved ones? So now if you encroach upon a loved one. Well, if your loved one in, uh, intrudes your space emotionally. No, I mean if somebody else is intruding on my loved one. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. Way. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's you or your loved ones, anything you cherish. Absolutely, for sure. So that's healthy anger. So the role of anger is to set a boundary between what's nourishing, uh, you know, to, to, to let in. The lot of healthy anger is to keep out what's dangerous and unwelcome, right? What's the role of the emotional system in general? Is to let in what's healthy and nurturing and to keep up what's dangerous and unwelcome. Is that fair enough? Seems good. What's the role of the immune system? Same, basically. Exactly, it's the same. The role of the immune system is to keep up what's dangerous and toxic, allowing what's nourishing and healthy. The immune system and, then, and the 
emotional system are not separate systems. They're part and parcel of the same apparatus. They're unified. When you suppress the emotions, you're also suppressing the immune system. When you, set, when, you, when, you, when you don't know how to defend your emotional boundaries, that also um, weakens your immune boundaries physiologically. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Or if you repress the anger, that anger doesn't go away, doesn't evaporate into the heavens, it turns against you in the form of depression or self-loathing and so on. In the same way, the immune system turns against you, and now you have autoimmune disease. And so the traits that were identified with chronic illness, most chronic illness, like cancers or immune disease, are emotional self-suppression, inability to experience healthy anger, desire to please others, to fit in, to be acceptable, to be nice, um, to be ignoring of your own needs. These are the traits that are over and over and again identified in the literature, whether with multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis or with cancer. Now, these are not the real, per- these are not the real person. These are adaptive traits in response to the childhood environment, but they take a heavy toll. Or take another so-called illness, and by the way, the case I'm making is that what we call illness is actually response to life. So take, a, take depression this so-called biological disease of the brain. What does it mean to depress something? Try to push it down. To push it down. What gets pushed on, what's get pushed on in depression? Well, I can tell you, I've been depressed. What gets pushed on depression is your natural emotions. Everything is flat and nothing matters. Nothing has any meaning. And that yeah. starts with people pushing them down? That's that's the word. That's what the word means. <laughs> it means to push it down. It starts in childhood with people having to push down their emotions. Why do they have to push down their emotions? To fit in with other people's expectations. So, and I don't know the literature on this at all. So, there oftentimes then the depression will just sort of creep in slowly. I always assumed it was tied to something being stuck in. Um, a bad relationship, a death in the family, loss of a job, that there would be some sort of triggering event. Well, the, okay, fair enough. If you're in a bad relationship, the healthy response is not depression, but to deal with the challenges in the, refla- in the relationship, either by working them out or by leaving the relationship. Depression isn't a necessary outcome. The response to the death of a close one, of a close one is not depression, it's grief. Grief is the healthy response. We have a system in our brain for grief, by the way. So grief becomes depression when you're not allowing yourself to grieve. But you don't know how to grieve properly, yeah. And you don't know how to grieve properly because your emotions were suppressed as a child. And uh, so, yeah, we have uh, these healthy systems, but they get, their activity gets deformed through our natural expectations. Okay, so to stay with depression for a minute, so you're pushing all this stuff down. It yeah. starts in early childhood. You're trying yeah. to fit in. You yeah. want unconditional love. You're not getting it. So you have this directive for attachment. And so you begin to, oh, I see what I can do. If I, if I don't yell, scream, if I'm not expressing frustration, yeah. if I'm the caretaker or whatever that situation demands, then all is well. So now I've learned this adaptive response to suppress my emotions. 
And over time, it begins to numb me, I would assume. I have yeah. not been depressed, so okay. but uh, so you're beginning to be numbed, but now something it gets starts to be very extreme, and yeah. you what I have heard depression explained as is just like the skies are permanently gray. You will yeah. never see joy again. Yeah. And so yeah. what, what is breaking in that, that like the beach ball analogy I like, right? I'm pushing something under the water, but if I stop pushing, it will pop back up. And exactly. so if that thing or my emotions is when you're treating depression, let's say non-pharmacologically, is it the release of the pressure on those emotions to let them finally come up? Yeah, so the so the the difference between the pushing the beach ball down is that I'm doing it consciously and deliberately. Mm. But the repression of emotions that a child um, engages in is not conscious, is not deliberate. It's an automatic response. It's unconscious. Therefore, the child can't just let go like that. And then, as you say, it numbs and and becomes overall a depression. Now the by the way, I'm not against pharmacological treatment. I've taken antidepressants. They have helped me. So I'm not here to advocate against them. Mm. I, I could talk about their misuse, but in principle, sometimes they're helpful and occasionally they're life-saving. And much of the time, they're overprescribed for way too long and we're not dealing with the real issues because the pharmacology deals with the symptom, but it doesn't deal with the underlying problem. So yes, the healing of depression, and I talk, you know, the last, the, the, the final part and the longest part of the book really is on healing, is you have to, Reconnect to yourself so you can feel your emotions. That's the treatment of depression. Talk to me about reconnecting. How do you reconnect? What is that process? Well, uh, first of all, you recognize that you're disconnected. And you notice how that disconnect shows up in, a, in so many areas of your life. Uh, in your, on the job or in, the, uh, in your personal relationships, for example, or in your relationship to yourself. So you have to become aware. And this is where I talk about disease, whether it's physical or so-called mental, um, as teacher. Not that I recommend illness as a way of learning to anybody. It's, it's not my preferred. But prefer if it happens. But if it happens, it can actually teach you. Mm. And you can ask yourself, well, what have you been pushing down? And what are the stories? Why do I push it down? Oh, I pushed on emotions because I've learned I have the belief that if I'm angry, I'm a bad person. Well, is that really true? Is a person that experiences anger really a bad person? Um, I learned that if I push down my needs, uh, then people will love me. Do I really, be, do I really be want to be loved at the expense of disconnecting from myself? As a child, I had no choice. I had to be loved or connected with otherwise I wouldn't have survived is it still like that so basically it's a gradual isn't it though sorry isn't it like isn't it, in fact this is my overarching question and somebody yeah. that has helped so many people through therapy you probably yeah. have the answer or an insight but as we become adults yeah you don't have like other than your parents should yeah. you be lucky enough that they're still alive but Man, out in the outside world, pe people do want you to act a certain way. And if you don't, they're not going to be around you. Like, I'll just be honest. If somebody's throwing a tantrum as an adult, I don't have time for that. But an adult doesn't throw a tantrum. Are you uh, sure? Yeah. Like, that, that, I have seen adults throw what no, I would call the adult version you've of a tantrum. Seen adult, you have children in adult bodies throw tantrums. 
Interesting. Okay, go on. You know, so the ad- the adult who throws a tantrum, he's a traumatized child who has not developed self-regulation. I'm not talking about repression of self, but regulation. So, for example, help me differentiate. So, so for example, I throw up at the airline counter, and uh, they've um, overbooked the airplane. Okay, my healthy response is disappointment and some degree of anger. I'd say, this is not right that you did this. I want you to redress it. You do something about it, please. Throwing a tantrum, yelling at the poor clerk behind the counter who had nothing to do with creating the problem, who's just trying to do her job and trying to help me as best she can. Is that, that's not a mature adult. That's a child who's mid-frontal cortex or self-regulation has gone offline and his emotional circuits have taken over. Believe me, I've been an adult child very often in my life, as my wife could tell me, tell you. So uh, that's not an adult. Okay, so then the process there goes back to connect to yourself, figure out why you're repressing this. Yeah. Let go of those things that are keeping it down, find a way to... Um, be able to regulate yourself so that they're sort of contextually yeah. uh, sensical so that we're not in unhealthy anger territory. Um, okay, interesting. So trauma is, um, is an imprint that makes you react to the present like you're still a child, essentially. I mean, that's a very narrow definition of trauma, mm-hmm. but that's one of its essential aspects. And that the important thing that you said earlier is it's automatic. It's automatic, it's unwilled, it's automatic. And it's, um, and actually, when you look at the brain scans of deeply traumatized people, the prefrontal cortex is totally asleep. And the emotional circuits, you know, they're, the, 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 the primitive emotional responses are active. This is why so, many of, so much of the jail population are traumatized people, that's why they end up in jail. But instead of dealing with their trauma, and helping them develop, which they could, under the right circumstances, become adult people, self-regulated. The jails just make it worse mm. by the way th- by the way they torment people and the way they traumatize people even further. So, when I talk about a trauma-informed society, informed society, what if we actually understood trauma? What if we just actually understood it? It would have huge implications for medical school for medical uh, health delivery. What if when you went to the doctor with your depression, you weren't just told, you got this biological disease of the brain, here's a pill. But they actually said, what happened to you as a child? One of the people I quote in the book is the great uh, pediatrician, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, uh, Bruce Perry, who just wrote a book with Oprah, the title of which is called, What Happened to You? Mm. Not what's wrong with you. What happened to you? What if we asked that question? You know, so that would change medical treatment completely. What if in, ju- in, the, in, the, in the prison system or in the legal system, we didn't just say, what did you do? But what happened to you that made you do it? Now that wouldn't mean that we allow or encourage antisocial behavior, but it would mean that we would actually want to rehab- rehabilitate people and to help them become who they could be. You know, that's a very different legal concept. What if in education, 
it was kids' developmental needs that were paramount rather than their performance. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. It's interesting. How would you do that functionally? What would school look like? Well, I talk about it a bit. Like the schools in, in Finland, there's much more play. There's much more freedom. And they have much better results than we do. So that, in other words, we honor... What the, are the right results to look at? A child who's curious, who wants to learn, who's engaged, who's um, respectful of others, um, who is confident... Um, that would be the right results. Then you don't have to worry about stuffing knowledge down their throats. Why? Because they want to learn. They want to learn. So you don't have to punish them. You don't have to reward them. You just present them with the opportunities to learn, and they will. That's a natural human attribute. We kill that in this society. And how much of that, like, and again, I, I am so aware that I come at the interpretation of your solutions as somebody sort of in the thick of the broken thing. Yeah. Um, I used to teach adults, so mm -hmm. very different than teaching, you know, yeah. 12 year olds or whatever. But there is a certain amount of like, hey, I need everybody to stop talking and pay attention, right? So yeah. how do you how do you create the the system where we want a totally different outcome. So we're not going to be judging just based on your math. We're going to be looking at inquisitiveness. We're going to be yeah, looking at yeah. how much that you want to learn, but you're dealing with large groups, people in all different kinds of positions. Like how do we, cause the, there, the punchline of your book is like basically, Hey, we're going to have to overhaul a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, you go very specifically into the ways in which the culture is toxic. You have to read the book to get into it. Um, but it is like in a nutshell is basically we're sort of like, this is a ground up restart. Like there is a fundamental flaw. We've already talked about the sort of basic, basic first building block yeah. of how you actually, in fact, we haven't. Cause in the book you talk about like, even before you get pregnant, the things that can create trauma in yeah. Yeah. a fetus and it's carried on. And look, I, I will tell you dear audience that uh, he talks about the science and there really is from what I've seen quite a bit of science that can show, I think it was up to five generations, you could see an epigenetic marker of trauma yeah. in even the father who's carrying that across the yeah. sperm into yeah. the fertilized egg. Yeah. It has yeah. an impact on how the DNA is wrapped and expressed. It's insane. And that it goes for five generations. That's yeah. madness. And you yeah. begin to realize how easy it is to perpetuate yeah. this sort of wheel of trauma. Yeah. So knowing that, 
There's probably two things we should talk about because mm-hmm. right now, if mothers are paying attention, they're freaking out about all the mistakes that they made that have now traumatized their children. Uh, and so you go into blame in the book. I think that's important to touch on. Uh, and then... Yeah, go into the importance of not blaming. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I want you yeah. to speak to the role of blame here. Yeah. Um, and then how do we begin to heal, stroke, build a society that isn't sick? Well, the good news is that I wrote this book with my eldest son. I mean, and believe me, I've had a lot of guilt as a parent. I felt a lot of guilt for the way that I stressed and, and, and passed on my own trauma to my children, which I did. Not because I wanted to, I loved them. I, 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 as I've always said, I would have thrown myself into a fire for them, but there's a problem. They never needed me to throw myself into a fire. They just needed me to be at home, self-regulated, mm. knowing how to take care of myself, and being, knowing how to attune with their needs. Now that, as a traumatized survivor of the genocide in Europe, and as a workaholic doctor, and as an anxious husband in a conflictual <laughs> marriage, uh, I wasn't able to do. And that really did hurt my kids. I say that at this point, not with guilt, just to say that's what happened. Mm-hmm. I know I did my best. That just happened to be my best. But anyway, now what I'm saying is, is that um, I wrote this book with my son, and even the writing was a process of working out our issues. So the first thing, though, is that these issues can always be worked out, that the, the, the patterns can be reversed. We don't get stay stuck in them. Mm-hmm. So that's the good news. As far as blame is concerned, um, as you say, trauma is passed on multi-generationally. You know, the Bible says that uh, the sins of the fathers will be visited on to the third and fourth generations. They're not talking about the sins of the fathers, they're talking about the traumas of the parents mm. will be passed on to the future generations. It's true. Um, but if that's true, um, if I passed on my trauma, to my, ki- my trauma to my kids, did I cause my own trauma as a child? Why would anybody be blamed? You end up, who you end up blaming? Adam and Eve? You know, you end up blaming some ape living in a tree who was my ancestor at some point? I mean, blame doesn't make any sense. It's also cruel and, 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 and totally unhelpful. So there's no blame. In fact, it's, it's, about under, it's not about blaming, it's about understanding. But once we understand, now we can start to do th- things differently. That's the whole point. It's not about blaming. So we have to break the cycle, self-awareness, the cycle. Yeah. get yeah. in touch with ourselves. Now let's zoom out a little bit. So we know what to do on an individual basis. We have to stop the repression, let the emotions come up, mature yeah. into the adult that has the ability to self-regulate, that could be there for the next generation to raise a child in a healthier way. Exactly. At a societal level, how do we begin to think about this? And what are some highlights of like the, the things that you're like, yo, this is really broken and causing a lot of problems. Is it the healthcare system? Is it the education system? Like where do you think sort of the, the real big ones are? Well, the healthcare system and educational system, um, in any given society, the dominant institutions will reflect the interests of the dominant groups in any society. So who are the dominant groups in this society? Here's what we know. 
I know I'm talking to somebody who's made a lot of money, okay? So don't take this personally. <laughs> but but uh, the dominant groups in this society are getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and the rest of society is getting more and more uncertain and insecure. That's an untenable situation. Because when you look at what stresses people are loss of control, uncertainty, conflict, and lack of information, which are precisely the conditions that most people are increasingly living with. There's less security, there's less sense of a positive future, there's more sense of loss of control, there's more sense that I, I'm a little voice, I don't matter. Even during COVID, when uh, a lot of people lost a lot of money and under terrific, terrific uh, economic stress, the top stratum of billionaires gained immensely. Well, that's a stressful situation for a lot of people. That stress translates into physiological illness. That's just how it works. That's the first point. Uncertainty, loss of control, conflict, lack of information. That's a given condition of globalized capitalism. Because you never know when somebody a zillion miles away is going to make a decision that's going to change your life completely, over which you have no control whatsoever. That's a designation, or that's a, a recipe for stress. Okay, number one. Number two, um, you look at, well, there's a chapter on socio sociopathy as strategy. Now, you look at corporations, major corporations, who make decisions to deliberately concoct products that'll get people hooked and addicted. I'm talking about the food companies. This has been documented, that they actually plan scientifically which combination of salt, sugar, and fat are gonna get people addicted, which are gonna excite the addictive circuits in the brain. No doubt. Thereby killing millions of people. The tobacco companies, do I have to talk about them at all? About, about what they've done? The companies that have for decades hired phony scientists to deny climate change, thereby creating conditions of ill health, endangering life itself. And these are respectable, well-to-do um, pillars of society and philanthropists on massive scale. Um, the pharmaceutical companies, the pharmaceutical companies who sell opiates knowing. Now, I'm not against opiates, by the way. As a palliative care doctor, I love the opiates, not for myself, but for the patients I was looking after. Thank God. But to sell those products and telling doctors that they're not addictive when, they, when you know that they are, Tens and hundreds of thousands of people are dying of, of opiate overdoses. But that's sociopathy by any definition. And these are the people at the top. Still an echo of childhood trauma. Or do you think there's something else at play? Well, uh, it's a combination. I, I think the people who do it, they're really disconnected from themselves. They really are disconnected from themselves. Uh, 
and they're acting out their traumas in some ways. But it's also the nature of this system. These are the people that this system raises to high levels of power and rewards. Then there's the political system. Now, I'm not talking about political policy here for a moment. But in the book, in the, in, the, in the chapter on trauma and politics, we looked at two opposing candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Now, Trump is, a, is one of the world's trauma experts. Bessel van der Kolk said to me, is a poster boy for, for trauma. The grandiosity, the denial of reality, the genuine inability to tell reality from lies. Um, the aggressiveness. Trump said once that, um, that the world is a horrible place. It's dog-eat-dog. -dog. Even your friends want your wife, they want your money, they want your house. And this is your friends. Now, he wasn't making it up. That sense of the world being a horrible place reflected his childhood mm -hmm. under a tyrant of a father who demeaned his kids horribly, and a mother who didn't protect them. And one of his brothers drank himself to death. Now, as we know, his niece wrote a book, who knows the family really well, on the, Trump that, on the trauma that Trump endured and how it manifests in his adult life. Now, I'm not criticizing the guy, I'm not blaming him, I'm not even talking about his specific policies, I'm talking about his personality. Now, that's Trump, okay? Who was he running against? So let me tell you this story. I, I, you probably read it, but let me tell it to you and give me your opinion. A four-year-old girl runs into the house to his mother. She's upset because neighborhood, neighborhood children are bullying her. And the mother says, there's no room for cards in this house. Now you get out there and deal with it. What's the message to that child? At four years old, yeah. At four years old, how would that be read? That you're on your own, kid. Yeah, you suck it up, and don't be vulnerable in this house. That story was told at Hillary Clinton's nomination celebration at the Democratic um, convention in 2016, and it was told as an example of wonderful parenting. Mm. That same election campaign. When Hillary developed pneumonia, what did she do with it? Do you remember? Nothing, right? She didn't tell anybody. Yeah. She collapsed in the street. She sucked it up. And she put up, of course, with the philandering of her husband all those years, blaming herself for not meeting his needs. Typical trauma response. What I'm saying is that the American public had the choice of being two traumatized people. They chose the more traumatized one. <laughs> the more traumatized. Yeah, the, yeah. That's that's the one. They, that's the one they chose. There were all kinds of reasons for that. Again, I'm not talking about policy, foreign or domestic. I'm talking about personalities here. Mm -hmm. These are the people that we elevate to public, uh, high public level. And they carry their traumas with them. Inevitably, those traumas show up in their politics. Mm. Okay, so society healing making things better i know that you consider yourself hopeful as do i 
I am worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about this before we started mm-hmm. recording. Mm-hmm. There is, uh, my audience is going to get tired of hearing me say this, but there is a Chinese uh, curse, proverb. Not May sure you live in interesting times. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I would say right about now. It's very uh, interesting. Very interesting times. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. how do we, and I think you've even said that it, you know, there's going to be a period of, of deep unpleasantness, but uh, that long term you're optimistic and walk me through one is why are you optimistic? I am too, but I'm just curious what drives your optimism and then how do we make sure we end up on the optimistic side? Well, look, first of all, to speak personally, um, the imprint on me of um, being an infant under conditions of genocide and war and under conditions of a mother who was really stressed and terrorized um, and grief-struck because her parents were killed in Auschwitz. Oh, God. Uh, and then who gives me up to a total stranger when I'm a year old to save my life. I remember that story. Yeah. Was that this is a bad world, that I'm on my own, that um, nothing's ever going to work out for me. And so even when I was successful as a physician and even as a writer and so on, my innate belief was I'm basically screwed. Now, I don't feel that way anymore. So, Do you I, remember when that changed? Sorry? Like, I, I'm trying to figure out when that changed. So what was the work that you were doing? Because we have the, the thumbnail sketch. Yeah. We understand we have to stop repressing our emotions, let them yeah. get reattached to ourselves. Yeah. But like, if it were that easy, then everybody would be cured at the end of this podcast, which of course they won't be. It's not that easy, no. So in the work that you were doing on yourself, were there a string of breakthroughs? There were a string of breakthroughs. It wasn't like one big epiphany. Mm. It was the gradual work over time. Do you remember any of the, the key moments? A lot of it happened in my relationship. Uh, I'm married to somebody who, uh, in my first chapter, I say that, you know, my problem is that my wife understands me, you know, and uh, <laughs> she does all too well, but she loved me anyway. So, and, and wanting to be in that relationship, I had to grow up. Because at a certain point, she wasn't willing to live with the child anymore. Mm-hmm. So we grew together. Uh, I would say that was the basic ground of my development. But getting therapy, learning to know my own patterns and where they came from and learning to get some agency over them was very important for me. Uh, what I observed as a physician, as a clinician, as a healer, was huge fonts of information for me. And learning what because you start to understand the patterns of human behavior? Yeah, I start to understand human beings. Um, uh, sometimes I took antidepressants. Uh, that helped temporarily. By lifting the cloud, letting lifting you feel the clouds, something so different. I, so I could feel more clearly. In fact, you know, again, I'm not an advocate for the massive and I think horrendously overdone use of medications. But I can tell you. That the first time I took antidepressant, after a few days, I said, you mean people can feel like this normally? Mm-hmm. So when that cloud is lifted, I could see a bit more clearly now, a lot more clearly, actually. Um, coming to terms with my ADHD and understanding the patterns, not as an inherited disease, but as an adaptive response, mm. uh, really helped as well. Um, Ooh, interesting. So wait. I'm not surprised. So everything comes back to trauma. So mm-hmm. how is ADHD an adaptive response to a situation? Okay. So 
picture me, okay, as I was at the uh, first year of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, my father's in forced labor. My mother doesn't know if he's dead or alive. Her parents are killed in Auschwitz when I'm five months of age. She has to wear the yellow badge as a Jew under the Nazis. That painting of that is going to be in the book. Um, uh, she's terrorized. She doesn't know if she's going to survive, if mm-hmm. I'm going to survive. How am I feeling? I can only imagine. Well, give me a few words. Um, afraid. Yeah. Lost. There's a pediatrician that saw me and said he has never seen such fear in anybody's eyes than in my own eyes. Lost. Right. All that. Hopeless. Stressed. Okay. Very. How do I cope with that? You push it down. I dissociate. I tune out. What is ADD all about? Tuning out. Really? Never thought of it like that. Well, the major trait of ADD is tuning out, a kind of absent-mindedness, an unwilled tuning out. As an infant, what else could I do? Could I escape? Could I change the situation? I tune out. When am I tuning out? When my brain is developing. The tuning out gets programmed to my brain. Why are we seeing more and more kids with ADHD these days? Because parents are so stressed. Mm. And sensitive kids pick up on that stress. They don't know what to do with it. They tune out as, as small children when their brains are developing. It's not a genetic disease. It's an adaptive response. The problem with adaptive responses is they help you at the time, but later on they become problems. In other words, adaptive at one point, maladaptive at another mm-hmm. point. Again, the problem is that they're not conscious adaptations. I mean, look, if, you, it, was, if it was raining, in California, the weather's always good in Los Angeles, but let's go back to Canada, okay? It's, um, I'm up in the north of Canada, it's freezing, it's, you know, 50 below, whatever that even means, you know? How do I adapt? I put on warm clothing. That helps me survive. But what if I still wore that warm clothing in the wintertime when it's really hot? That same adaptation would not kill me. Mm-hmm. The problem with these childhood adaptations, now with the cold clothing, I could take it off. Oh, it's not cold anymore. I can take off the warm clothing. These childhood psychological uh, adaptations, they're not conscious. They're not willed. They're not deliberate. They're automatic. They're under the level of awareness. Therefore, I can't just drop them. In fact, I even associate my survival with them. So I'm very reluctant to give them up. So something has to happen to wake me up. Oh, this isn't working anymore. This is where a diagnosis like ADHD or depression comes in. This is where illness comes in. It can be a wake-up call. Again, I don't recommend it. Or a relation, or a bad divorce. All of a sudden you realize, I married somebody who didn't understand me. Why did I stay with them so long? Because my parents never understood me. So I expect not to be understood. Mm. But it doesn't work for me anymore. So next time I marry, I'm going to marry somebody who is a bit more mature. And, and, you know, I'm more mature now. So what I'm saying is that these adaptations, they show up as problems later on in life. And then we can learn from them. In, in the case of my marriage, we learn together. I'm curious. In, in a marriage, so... Parents should offer their kids unconditional love. Yeah. Should a spouse offer their other half unconditional love? Yes, but it shows up differently. 
So unconditional love doesn't mean that I have to put up with it. Doesn't mean that I, you know. In 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 the case of uh, in the case of my wife, when I'm throwing a tantrum, the healthy response on her part is to say, "If you're gonna be like that, I don't want to be in the same room with you. But if you keep doing it, I don't even want to be in the same house with you." So what is the changes between childhood and adulthood? Because in childhood you're saying don't do that. The dependency. The dependency. That that the child depends on the parent for very life itself Mm. and for healthy development. My wife is not responsible for my healthy development. She's not my mother anymore. As a matter of fact, the reason women get so much autoimmune disease is they suppress themselves to take care of the stresses of their men very often. Yeah, you tell a story. I think it's in the book. I've heard so many interviews as well. Sometimes I get confused what was in the book uh, of a woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer and her husband, whose first wife had also died of breast cancer. Her first thought was, oh, my God, I hope I don't get so sick that I can't take care of. Yeah, it's in the book. She's the one that diagnosed with breast cancer. She's going to have the chemotherapy or radiation or surgery or whatever. And her first thought is, how will I look after my husband's emotional needs? Mm. Well, that's culturally ingrained in women. That's why they... Do you think it's just cultural? Or is it also an echo of the need to be nurturing to the child? It's true that the nurturing instinct in women is much more mm, developed than in men. Partly because they have more of the hormone oxytocin, which is a nurturing hormone. But partly because it's their cultural role. And if you take men who look after children, they become really good mothers. So it's a question of what role pe- are people put in. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I forgot what we were talking about. Right before that last saying, yeah. you were explaining the difference between um, the dependencies of a yeah. child. Here, here, here's a, oh, yeah. My wife is not responsible to help me go into a healthy adult. That's not her job. Mm. Her job is to be responsible for the healthy growth of our children. If she suppresses her needs and puts all her energy in taking care of the... Women have a decision to make in our society. My wife did, really, in a sense. Uh, Am I going to look after the little babies or am I going to look after the big baby? And the energy they put into looking after the big baby is taken away from the little babies, mm. and children suffer as a result. So my wife is not responsible for my maturation and my healthy growth. Um, she, ex- she has the right to expect that I'm going to show up as an adult. Caring. But when you're supposed to offer unconditional love and you're not getting what you need from your significant other, how do you have people play that out? Is it is there a point at which they say, look, I just I can't offer you unconditional love. I need to separate from this. Or you can say, I love you. I really want the best for you, but I can't be with this. Mm. I can't be with it. It's toxic for me. It's bad for our children. At some point. That's a reasonable thing to say. So in that way, do are you saying that we should have unconditional love for everybody, even though that means we'll maintain boundaries, we'll have different kinds of relationships? Well, it depends what we mean by unconditional love. And again, it depends on the age of the person and the, the needs of that person. So um, uh, 
having love for a person doesn't mean that you're going to put up with everything that they do. Mm-hmm. But how you, like even with children, as we said earlier, we have to draw our boundaries. But the question is, how do we draw our boundaries? And in what spirit and with what intention? That's interesting. That's so complicated and makes me despair because it's so hard. But I think you're right. The spirit in which you make the intention. So, for instance, my wife and I, I would never have said that I love her unconditionally just Mm because that doesn't feel true in that I have specifically given her conditions and said, um, if you were unfaithful to me, that would be the end of the marriage. Um, That would be the end of my marriage, too. For sure. So... But the spirit in which I make that is not meant to be a threat or anything like that. It's just clarity. What you're actually saying is, honey, my relationship with you is so important that I can't bear to share that with somebody else on that intimate basis. Because my capacity to be intimate with you would really suffer Mm. if I had to wonder whether you're choosing somebody else instead of me. That's a perfectly normal, healthy statement to make to an adult partner. It's an expression of love, actually. Help me understand that. How is that an expression of love? Because you really want her. You're helping them be successful. You you really want that person in your life. You're saying, I really want you in my life, fully. And there's no room for that in that. You can have all kinds of friends, and I hope you're independent and you have a life that's not all bound up with my own and I want you to have your own activities and find your own meaning and have your own friends and have your own activities but in terms of intimate relationships I can't handle sharing that with somebody else Mm -hmm. that's an expression of love there's so much depth and nuance to the human mind to the human experience yeah. Do you at all worry that we as a society will not be that? Here's my thesis. We didn't intentionally get it right a thousand years ago or yeah. 10,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah. It was just that was the nature of what we had access to. That's right. And to sort of co-opt Chris Rock's statement, you're only as faithful as your options, which I totally disagree with. But <laughs> uh, but culturally, like when you take it on mass, it does feel like a lot of the sort of sickness things are us solving like these minor annoyances that end up snowballing into becoming deep problems. Like at first it's just like, Hey, we want to be able to control the food supply. So we don't starve to death. Amazing. Then it's like, well, we can already do that. Now I want to make sure that the food that I'm storing tastes good. And then it's like, whoa, well, if I can do that, then I want to be able to sell it. And if I want to sell it, I want to sell more of it. Now that I want to sell more of it, I want to make sure that it tastes really good and gets into that addictive quality that you're talking about. And look, not everybody does it. Obviously, from a food perspective, that was the whole reason that my partners and I got into food in the first place was we wanted to make junk food good for you. And so using things so that... I, I, I explain that. How do you mean junk food good for you? So if it's good for you, it's not junk food. Well, so to your point, this depends on how we define junk food. So yeah. I'll yeah. define the way that we looked at it yeah. is things that you grew up as like craving, wanting, yeah. whether it was chips. So we made yeah. protein chips. Now, yeah. the great thing about protein chips yeah. is they naturally kill your hunger. So yeah. you're only going to eat so many of them and then they stop being fun. Fair so doing things like that. But anyway, I don't want to get lost in that. But... So I worry that, that this isn't a bell that can't be unrung. Well, but, but let's go back to what we were talking about intention. 
Your intention wasn't purely to make a profit. Your intention was also to serve people while making a profit. That's a very different intention than my, my, own, than my only purpose is to make a lot of money, at no matter what cost. No matter how many people get sick, how many people develop diabetes, become obese, become addicted to, to, to stuff that's terrible for them. That's the actual intention of many of the major corporations. Now that wasn't your intention. So I'm talking about intention. But how do we scale that? That's my punchline. How do we scale it? What do you mean by that? So I really, I, I, have, I could have retired and never worked again, but yeah. I really want to help people like okay. get to, I wouldn't use your language. The word I always use is, is a growth mindset. I want people to have a growth mindset. Okay. But I think secretly we sort of have a very similar aim, which is we want people to thrive. We just happen to be each attacking a different part so of the problem. So that's the intention. The intention is that people should thrive. Now, how do we scale that? How do we get I, 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 You know what? I'm not a business person. What do you mean by scale? How do oh, we get sorry. It? I don't mean I, it from I, a business on a, perspective. On a, on a massive level? Yeah. Yeah. So if we have a sick society, which I'm with you, or a sick culture, yeah. I'm with you, how do, we, how do we get a culture like... I mean, we're recording this as there is a war going on on the borders of Europe. So uh, it does make me feel like there's just a nature to humans and it repeats. I think we're going to have to challenge who's in control, for one thing. At some point, we're going to have to challenge that on some level. This is not a book about... we We do touch upon politics and the trauma that's manifested in politics... But this I hope the answer isn't politics. I hope the answer but, is... But, but, but this book is not a political manifesto. Agreed. You know? Um, but I think people have to start thinking about what I'm talking about on, on a large scale rather than just how do I make my life better? How do I make society better? In other words, how can we think with the mutual need as our intention and our commonality as intention rather than just my personal uh, you know, aggrandizement? I think that shift is going to have to happen for our survival, number one. In terms of what you say about wars and so on, well, in any war, if you examine them closely, including this one, they're always conflicting interests and power interests and so on. I don't think I'd want to get into the politics of this war and what I think about it, but it's not just an expression of human nature. It's an expression of political systems clashing with each other for very selfish reasons. That's what I see happening, and I see that in just about every war. You know, so... Is it in our nature to be aggressive and cruel? Certainly our potential to be that way. But you know, here's what I see. Yesterday I was talking to a, a, a US veteran, a, a Navy SEAL, who, who came back, as many do, with severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, through a psychedelic experience, actually, he turned it around. He was losing his marriage, he was, ter- he was throwing coffee pots through the window. He was terrifying his children. His wife no longer recognized him. And uh, then he had this experience and he rediscovered his true nature, which was loving and, and, and nurturing and so on. And now he's that way towards the world. He would never go back and do the things again that he did then, mm-hmm. you know? So th- I- even during COVID, you say human nature. Well, in the book, I make this point. Alfie Cohn, who's an educator, educator and a writer, he says, when somebody behaves selfishly, we say, well, that's just human nature. How about when somebody behaves generously? We never say, well, that's just human nature. But it is. 
And, and so, at least in the early days of COVID, the more stressed we got and the more overwhelmed we got by the crisis, the more the divisions and the mm. rancor showed up in so many, on both sides. But what did we see in the beginning? We saw a lot of people cooperating, collaborating, being kind to each other, um, being communal, celebrating the healthcare workers, you know, supporting one another. That, that's in our potential as well. So why should we settle for the worst versions of ourselves? And I say, that's us. It isn't. Actually, most people want peace. They don't want war. People usually have to be manipulated into war, which they are very often. Mm. You know, so what's our nature? That's why I'm optimistic. I think it's in us. I love it. I have to get you on an airplane, so I have to yeah. let you go. The book was amazing, man. Where can people connect with you? Where can they get the book? Well, um, the book will be published, is published on September the 13th, and it's going to be available everywhere. Um, I hope people will favor their local bookstores and uh, pick up the book, but you know, it's obviously every, it's going to be available online as well. Um, in terms of, I have a website, drgabormate.com, and pretty much everything I'm up to. I'm also all over YouTube. Not that I'm all over YouTube, but pe yeah. people have published an amazing your interview with me last year. Lots of hits and lots of other interviews are available on YouTube, so I'm easy to find these days. Yes, you are. Yeah. Boys and girls, uh, I fear that trauma may be the hidden influence on the world, and there are a few people that elucidate it more clearly and what to do more clearly than this man. I hope you will read the book, and I hope that you will engage with him online. You will be richly rewarded, as I know many of you, I'm sure, and according to uh, the good doctor, all of us, uh, have experienced trauma in some way or another and to be blind to it will be to your own detriment. So check it out. You definitely will not regret it. And speaking of things you won't regret, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.